Christmas is coming. I'm very excited for it. Even though it's not going to be, as Rich said, like previous Christmases that we have had. Uh, I'm excited for it, but let me ask you this. So it's, it's 19 days, am I right? Does anyone else count? Yeah, some of us are counting, fantastic, okay. Uh, some of us are already indulging in Brussels sprouts and, you know, the like. But does it bother you that if you have decorated your house already, how many of us have a Christmas tree and, okay, nativity sets? Any? Oh, some of us, okay. Um, does it bother you that most nativity sets Mine certainly are incomplete. They don't have every character that should be there. What character are we missing, anybody, from the nativity that we've read? Uh, Herod's not there. Yes, Herod should be there, shouldn't he? Yes, Matthew. Uh, Well, Jesus is there, although he's always like... He always looks a certain stereotypical way that is not Middle Eastern as well. Um, But one of the characters that we're going to see that is missing from our nativity set is the dragon. Of course, right? You've seen the dragon read in Revelation chapter 12. We will talk about that. Um, But uh, that's only one of the things that is missing uh, from the nativity. You might find that Jesus is in a stable instead of in a guest room. You might find that by the time the Magi arrive, Jesus is still a baby, and he should probably be a toddler. Um, And then, of course, the dragon. Now, reading the book of Revelation can feel a little bit weird. Did it feel weird to you? Were you thinking that when, when it was being read? Well, I think it's partly because it's a piece of um, the Bible that was... Uh, feels very different to us culturally. It uses symbols and signs that we don't really use nowadays. And I remember when Megan and I were watching um, Dickensian, and we started watching it, it's a BBC uh, program, and all I knew were the characters from A Christmas Carol, at best. And every other character that was showing up, I would had to ask Megan, who read more Charles Dickens than I ever probably will, uh, for her to explain to me, who is that bloke, who is that lady, who is that child? And she would explain it to me because she'd read it. And in a similar way, there are lots of things that we talk about in the book of Revelation that we say, do you know what? In the Old Testament it says, and therefore it helps us understand what's going on here. So that's what we're going to do. And that way, hopefully, Revelation seems a little bit less crazy, especially as a book to talk about at Christmas. Because the whole point of the book and of this evening is to remind those of us who believe in God's word There is hope, there is assurance in difficult times. Here's the main book of, the main um, aim of the book of Revelation. There it is. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Do you know what that means? That means that uh, the bit that Lewis has just read in chapter 12 will bless you if as you hear it, you take it to heart, you obey what God's Word says. That's very encouraging. And that's why we're going to meet three characters this evening. And here's the first one. The pregnant woman. Right? <laughs> that's gasp. <laughs> that sounds like a, like a weird thing to read about in the book of Revelation. Especially because when we ask, who is she? Who is this woman? Well, she's not a woman at all. That's really interesting. 
Okay, look at verse 1 of chapter 12. She is a great sign. She's a symbol and not a person. And if you read the, the prophet Isaiah, that's not news to you that the Bible speaks like that. That's why, for example, you find in Isaiah 26, 17, this verse. As a pregnant woman about to give birth rides and cries out in her pain, so will we in your presence, Lord, say the nation of Israel. By the way, just to check, can anyone hear a little, is that anything I'm doing? Do I need to do anything different? No, we just don't know. Okay, that's fine. So, uh, we find then that this is, this woman is a symbol, is a great sign. And that she actually represents the community of people who trust God. She is, follow with me, the verses, clothed with the sun. You remember there was a reference to that in chapter 1, verse 16, where we read, His face, Jesus' face, was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance, and this woman, God's people, is reflecting the brilliance of Jesus. Also, we see that she has this ability of shining forth the light of the gospel, because in chapter 1, verse 20, we find that's what churches are like. They are lampstands, shining uh, the light of the gospel. So, this woman, this group of people, clothed with the glory of her God, of her Christ. And then there's this other weird thing. Look at it. What's this about the moon being under her feet? If you read Psalm 72 with me, let's see if I put it on there. Um, it says this, Psalm 72, verse 5. May he endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon. The moon, a picture of endurance. Psalm 89, 37, it says, It will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. So this woman, this group of people, God's people, will last forever and are going to endure like the moon. We don't stop there in the kind of beautiful imagery that you have there. So God's community of people, uh, this woman is wearing a crown, a victor's crown, the crown of the winner, and a crown of 12 stars, like the 12 tribes of Israel that you know from the book of Genesis. And therefore, she's a symbol, really, of God's people. Now, many of my Catholic friends would love to read this chapter and say that, who is this woman? Mary. But I don't think really that we can get away with that. I don't think it really makes sense because you'll find that this woman exists from before the Christ child is born all the way to uh, when John is writing and beyond by the, by the time you get to the end of the chapter. So I think Mary would have to be like 150, something crazy like that. I don't think that would really work. Um, and then again, we find as another reason that this is God's people. But God's people are struggling. Look at verse 2. How are they struggling? Labor pains. There's some pain, there's some suffering going on in this community of believers, and not least because of our next character, the character in the missing uh, nativity set, the dragon. Now, who is this creature? If you read on, look at verse 9. If you have your Bibles open uh, in front of you, that would be helpful to you. We explained who this dragon is. It's the ancient snake, the devil. That means the false accuser, the one who accuses falsely, the Satan, the Satan, the adversary, the villain, the arch enemy of God's people. Do you remember our final episode of 1 Peter that is now on the screen there? 1 Peter 5, 8. Who was it that was ready to persecute God's people while they're living as exiles, looking forward to their eternal home? Well, it was this guy, your enemy, the devil, 
prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. What does the dragon want to do in verse 4 of our passage? Well, he wants to, yes? No, that's fine. Um, He wants to devour the child. And so out of God's people comes this important child, a child so scary, so threatening to the rule of the dragon that he would have to watch closely for the birth of the child so that he can stop it, so that he can frustrate God's plan. And if you've been reading for a while your Bible from the Old Testament, you know that that's a pattern, isn't it? Um, The spiritual powers of darkness always trying to make sure that God does not, cannot fulfill his promises. He cannot rescue. You see that in the Garden of Eden. Um, Adam and Eve are tempted away from God's plan of creation. He's fighting so that Abraham, the dragon is fighting so that Abraham won't have descendants so that all the nations of the earth can't be blessed through him. There's the killing of all the male Israelite children at the time of Moses. And then when the nation of Israel isn't uh, fighting people outside, then they're fighting each other. And you'll know that if you've ever read the book of Judges, the book of Samuel, the book of Kings. And we keep asking the question, man, things look so dark and bleak. How is God ever going to fulfill his promise to bring out this chosen one who is going to do away with sin, rescue his people? And so by the time we get to the prophets, that's the question we're asking. And how is he going to get rid of our sin? So that's what the dragon is doing. But let's have a little more of a conversation about him. Because I love the description of the dragon in here. Here's why. Because it shows that the Bible isn't messing around with pretty stories. The Bible is saying, I acknowledge that evil is real. That evil isn't just what one species does to another, which is what you would have to believe if you are uh, someone who does not believe in God. And so, when someone says, one of the, one of the common things I think that I hear uh, from people who don't believe as I do in the God of the Bible, is they'd say, well, I can't believe in God because of the evil in the world. Well, this passage again is telling us evil is real, There's a source for it um, alongside our sinful nature. And I can say, well, if there's no God, then calling something evil wouldn't make sense. And yet the Bible here acknowledges that there is evil. And the other thing is, because the dragon is persecuting the child, uh, Satan persecuting, um, trying to stop God's people uh, from seeing the Messiah rise up, we find this really hard. Because when we read that God's people are being persecuted, well, here in the West, we feel quite safe, don't we? No one is trying to kill us because we are Christians, for those of us who believe in Jesus here this evening. But I suspect that if we asked some of the people that uh, a website like Open Doors, for example, um, helps and prays for persecuted Christians around the world, they probably would say, Everything in my life, because I am a Christian, feels like there's some invisible strings being pulled that just make my life that much worse. And we would say as we read Revelation, well, there are. Peter has told us that there's been a hungry dragon who's thirsty to frustrate God's uh, people and God's purposes for God's people. 
And you know what? He is pretty ugly. Look at him. Verse 3. How many heads has he got? Anybody? Seven monstrous heads. He's got ten horns, which are symbols in the Old Testament part of the Bible for authority and power. And ten and seven are numbers of completion. So he claims to be very, very powerful. And in verse 4, he tries to do that by hurting God's people. We've learned in Revelation in the past, in chapter 1, you can look at that in your Bibles, chapter 1, verse 20, that stars are symbols for either angels or for those in charge of churches, and the dragon hurts them to a large degree, a third probably meaning a large number. And so he's trying to nip it in the bud and make sure that God never can fulfill his promises. Now, who does that sound like? Someone who would persecute and kill children in the nativity story. Anybody? Herod? Yes, evil Herod. Does anybody know that Herod was so paranoid that he gave the order for his wife, his brother, maybe more than one brother, more than one brother, and his mother to be killed because he thought they were a threat to his throne. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus can do that to us. He is threatening because it's either he is the king or we are kings and queens of our own lives. And so he provokes this division. Jesus has said before in the Gospels, hasn't he? Um, I did not come to bring peace but a sword because we feel divided when we come up against Jesus. It's either we say, you are my God, I worship you, or we say, no, 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 I, I, I need to push you aside. So why is this dragon so threatened? Well, look at verse 5. This child is born to be a ruler. And that's a quote from Psalm 2 that says, You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. It's like there's going to have this fight. And you know the saying, Never bring a piece of clay to a bar fight. That's a, that's a maybe that's not a saying. But, um, but the idea is you have this weird picture that Jesus is going to come and be a king. And man, he's got a crowbar. Like that, that's his weapon of choice. He's got an iron scepter. And the opposition is coming in and they're shouting, they're screaming, we're going to dethrone you. You can't be Lord of my life. And what have they got? Clay, pottery. They haven't, they haven't got a chance. Which is why in that psalm that was quoted, it says this. The rulers bend together against the Lord and his anointed. And God's response, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. So it's crazy because you remember that time when Peter, when Jesus said, I'm going to die and rise again for the sins of the world. And Peter says, no, Jesus, don't say that. Stop that. You shouldn't do that. You're the Messiah, you can't die. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. I don't think Jesus was calling Peter Satan, but I think what he was saying is, any way of thinking that aligns itself more with the dragon that wants to go against God's purposes than thinking that aligns itself with God's purposes, with what Jesus says, with God's word, that's dangerous. Very, very dangerous. And so a lot of people who are 
thinking maybe of God as a, he's just a killjoy. He's just a crutch. He's a figment of our imagination to minds that are otherwise just hopeless a little bit. All of those uh, ways of thinking are right in line with the dragon, but also right in line with those who come uh, swinging a fist at God, only to later be defeated. And so we don't want to make that mistake. That's why I wanted us to think about what the dragon is trying to do in this nativity. But then you need to meet the dangerous child, this child that is threatening. What do we learn about him? Well, he's born of the woman, so he comes from the community of God's people. He is prophesied to rule the nations, so he's threatening, as I said, to all of our false things that we want to put our hope in more than God. And we find that he is delivered safely in both senses of the word. Um, the Son of God is born, and he accomplishes his mission, which is sort of squeezed all together into verse 5, when it says he was snatched up to God's throne. His life, perfect. His death, uh, atoning for all the sins of the world. And his ascension. Uh, he is powerfully sitting next to God the Father. So he's raised and ascended, all in verse 5. Put it together, you've got a victorious child that threatens um, my own kingdom, but actually who can be really freeing if I trust in him and give um, my life to him. So as you read on, there's a few verses in there, uh, verses uh, 10 to 12, that help us to interpret what's going on in a weird battle that happens in verses 7 to 9. Um, battles in the Bible, this is an epic one. It's Michael in the one corner, and it's um, Satan and his angels in the other. And you have this like running commentary someone has imagined, where you might have you know your uh, BBC football commentators, you know Jones and Smith, and they're sort of saying, you know, Michael and his angels, they join the fray. It's forces of heaven against forces of hell, and it's the stuff of television series. Except the BBC is never going to do it because it's to do with Christians. Um, so the dragon, the dragon raises itself up poised to deal some deathly blows, but wait, he's not strong enough. Says Jones, after all that huffing and puffing, he's defeated, an astounding defeat. And what's the weapon that kills him in verse 11? Blood, the blood of the lamb. The final weapon that overcomes the powers of darkness is the fact that Jesus, who became a man at Christmas, lived a perfect life in the place of anybody who will believe, died on the cross as the sacrifice that's enough to take away your sin and my sin, and rose again and ascended. He has won. And it's because of these things that the New Testament talks about Christians as being people who wash their robes in blood. That's another picture from the book of Revelation. And so what Jesus did is passed on to me, to you. And in that sense, when Jesus dies on the cross, that battle is reflected in the heavenly realms. And Michael just does the kicking out of Satan. I love that. Because before I believed in Jesus, the accuser had every right to point out what I'd done wrong, the ways that I had offended God, that I'm guilty before God. He could say, you are a just God. Look at this bloke. Look at Tiago. 
Okay? He's just lied. He's cheated. He's looked at pornography. He was rude to his parents. He, dis he dishonored you all day, every day. Punish him because he deserves it. And the dragon would have been right. Absolutely right. But now that I believe and trust in Jesus, the accuser can hear this answer instead. Yes, that is true. And Tiago has now been punished to the fullest extent because he is clothed in Christ. Jesus was punished in his place. You cannot accuse him anymore. And that's one of the big ideas I wanted you to think about. Are you a believer in Jesus? If you know and appreciate that that's happened in your life, here are some uh, things that are going to happen in your heart. Your heart's going to be grateful. That's going to show itself in the way you enjoy God, you talk to him, in the way that you worship him, in the way that you celebrate his sacrifice. That gratitude is going to show itself in the way that you treat others and forgive others because if my sin was defeated by the blood of Jesus, if, uh, if his blood was enough to cover my sins, it's enough to cover anybody's. And I cannot think that I'm better than anyone. And verses like this will be dear to your heart. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when your mind next accuses you with overwhelming guilt, the guilt that Jesus died to take away, with Luther, I think this is a story about Luther, that he claims that the devil uh, spoke to him and accused him of all sorts of things, that you are a drunk, you, you don't treat people right. And Luther said, you don't know the half of it. Those are the only flaws you can see. There are the flaws that only God knows about. But thanks be to God who brings my heart repentance so that I can be clothed with Christ and I don't have to fear the accuser who was defeated. And so even though, guys, as you look at verse 17, which you don't have time to talk too much about, the dragon is still on the loose. He's still persecuting God's people. We have this paradox. We've won because the dragon is defeated. But we're still fighting. And we know that the outcome is certain. And so when you come up against evil and suffering, we want to remind ourselves the blood of Jesus is enough to cover my sins. The blood of Jesus is enough uh, to remind me I belong to God's family and also that his word in verse 11 is enough. How do you triumph over the powers of evil and darkness? The Bible says, by the blood of Jesus and by his word. And so if I can put it in one sentence as we bring things to a close, what's the point of this whole passage in a, in a long sentence with a subordinate clause? Christian, rest assured when you meet evil on earth, you know it's been defeated. So you fight by loving God more than yourself. You're going to continue to meet people whose little kingdoms are threatened by Jesus and they don't treat you very nicely because you're a Christian. You're going to continue to hear of evil in your own life and in the lives of Christians around the world. But know this, the lamb wins. 
We want to know that this Christmas. So you've met the woman, God's people. You've met the dragon, who is angry, but is defeated and is missing in our nativity. You met the child, dangerous to rebels, but wonderfully comforting to those of us who are victorious in him. So as you quiet in your heart at the moment, if I can invite you to just close your eyes and think and get ready to pray in your mind about these questions. How will the accusations of the dragon come to your mind? Today, tomorrow, guilt, shame. How will you remind yourself that you are clothed in Christ if you believe in him? Do you need to be reminded today that your life is part of this bigger story, this victory that we will see when Jesus returns as well? Let's pray together before we sing again. Dear Lord Jesus, forgive us that we forget often that evil has been defeated. We don't have to be afraid. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world too who see evil in different ways, even in demon possessions and uh, lots of other uh, expressions of the powers of darkness, that they would rest assured as much as we want to rest assured you are the victorious lamb, that Satan could never frustrate any of your plans. And when we feel like everything is dark or crumbling around us, you are the same faithful God that you have just seen, that we have just seen in this passage. Please help us to give to you all of our accusing thoughts from the evil one, from our flesh, knowing that your blood has covered us, we can be forgiven. Your blood is enough. In Jesus' name, amen.